All right, welcome back everyone to another episode of the Open Source Sports Podcast. My name is Ron Yurko. And I'm Costas Pelecrenes. And we're very excited today to have joined with us uh, Justin Ehrlich and Shane Sanders, uh, both professors of sports analytics at Syracuse University. Prior to joining Syracuse University, uh, Justin Ehrlich taught as an associate professor at Western Illinois University. Uh, 20, back in 2010, specialized data visualization, uh, visual analytics, uh, sports data analysis, machine learning topics. He also previously worked in the industry uh, as an Advis lead software developer, uh, also University Canvas and similar roles uh, for Nomis Systems and uh, HSSportsTV.net in Wichita, Kansas. Several different publications in sports data visualization, sports analytics, variety of journals, including Journal Quantitative Analysis of Sports, many guest talks and uh, live demonstrations, sports data visualization, analysis, uh, received PhD in computer science from the University of Kansas in, 28, in 2010, dissertation, the effect of desktop illumination real, realism on the presence and generalization in a virtual learning environment and graduated uh, master's from Wichita State University in 2007, as well as uh, University of Wichita, Kansas uh, 2004 in accounting and business administration. So welcome, thanks for joining us, Justin. And Shane Sanders, uh, professor of sports analytics also at Syracuse University, background sports, economics, uh, certified basketball analytics consultant in industry for six years, published work, journal business, economic statistics, journal data science, uh, journal Quantitative Analysis Sports, has published uh, work that's been featured in Fox, Fox Sports and Nylon Calculus, been keynote, guest talks, variety of different conferences, such as the Indiana University Sports Analytics Symposium, uh, Rochester Institute Technology Lecture Series. And I will also add that both uh, Shane and Justin presented work that was recognized as finalist prize at the 2019 CMSAC Reproducible Research Competition. Uh, so they're both very familiar with our Carnegie Mellon Sports Analytics uh, group and excited to have both of them join us here today. So thanks again, Shane and Justin. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So to kick it off, dive into the motivation for the paper we're discussing today, which I, which I forgot to actually mention the title of, is True Shot Charts. And so this paper will be in the show notes, link to it uh, online. and. Just to start with, you know, what was the motivation and the goal of this work? And why did you start working on this problem? You give us yeah. a high level overview of what exactly are true shot charts. Yeah, I, I can start this off and then uh, give it to Justin. Uh, essentially, I think both of us were looking at some sites like StatMuse and, and uh, seeing the, the positives in the what we would call the traditional shot charts for the NBA and, and some of the negatives. And um, I also saw um, a talk at Nessus uh, a few years ago, uh, I think also in 2019, uh, that kind of told us maybe where more advanced shot charts were going, but also um, some limitations of those charts. So, um, you know, when you look at StatMuse, I, I love the color coding and the, um, the size coding uh, for shot volume in a bin. Um, and size coding for shot volume, um, you know, color coding for proficiency. What I didn't really like, and I had discussions with, with Justin about this, and we both agreed we didn't, really didn't like is it, 
it's um, color coded with respect to league proficiency. So it tells you nothing about whether any uh, the league should be shooting that much from the bin. It just tells you, given that the league shoots from that bin, uh, the the uh, with uh, the amount that they do, um, um, how proficient are you relatively? Um, so we thought really uh, a shot chart can go beyond that to say, uh, well, what what are your expected points from the bin? Um, okay, so what are your um, expected points from the field? But also pursuant to shooting from the field, you know, you might get fouled. Uh, from that that shot location, and uh, that foul might lead to free throws. So, so we need to wrap that into um, into the calculation of expected points pursuant to a, a shot from that bin. Uh, another thing that I think it, it, I, I know is sometimes done, and I think it is usually done, is that um, the data on shot charts comes from uh, field goal attempts rather than uh, all shots from that location. So. Um, you know, that's a big omission. If I if I shoot from a location, I'm foul and I miss the shot. That's not a field goal attempt. It's a shot. So I, we want to pick up those events. And uh, so so I'll leave it to Justin for the rest of the answer. But he was able to uh, comb, comb play by plays and uh, um, pick up these events um, where there, it was a shot. It wasn't a field goal attempt. So we want that in the size coding. We want that in the, the volume at that bin location. Um, how many shots? Uh, uh, not just field goal attempts, but shots there were from that location, because all shots lead to essentially the termination of a of a possession, which is, you know, the cost of the of the be the cost of the act is is the termination of the possession. So just to clarify real quick, quickly, because this also stems from my lack of basketball knowledge. Um, so if a player attempts a shot and they are fouled regardless of whether they make it or not, is it not considered a field goal attempt? Uh, if they, it's kind of like cherry picking. If they make it, it's considered a field goal attempt and it's, it's by definition a, a make. And so this, this even distorts uh, the field I never goal. knew that. So traditional shot charts have, rely on just field goal attempts for the visualization. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Huh, okay. And, uh, That's interesting. Know, <laughs> this kind of distorts our view of how efficient players are. Like you look at a guy like Jimmy Butler, he has a, a 0.7 free throw rate. Um, uh, essentially he gets 0.7 free throws for every field goal attempt, but um, you know, he, um, uh, a, a lot of those are, are um, a lot of his acts, his shots aren't, aren't really counted. He, he's efficient either way, but there's some distortion, which we go into in the paper. Yeah, yeah because of that, even in the play-by-play -play data itself, we don't have the X-Y locations of the, the missed shots that were fouled. So we have to estimate those, those um, the, the, the foul rate based upon the uh, those missed shots. And we go into, into that in the paper. The other thing we want to do is create like a dashboard that's similar to StatMuse, that is an alternative to StatMuse, that offers um, more insight into, into the shot charts. We hope, hopefully, we hope to get something like that, like StatMuse up and running um, pretty quickly um, with our data. So just um, uh, one question to follow up on what um, Justin just mentioned. So in the play-by-play -play data, even in, the, so there's no location for where the shooting foul occurred, right? Right. Okay. And uh, is there a quick way to um, say how you do this estimate? Uh, I, I was under the impression we had X, Y location for the uh, missed shots also in the 
the big data I'm vault. Yeah, I'm mistaken about that. We do actually have the extra location of the okay. of visiting clouds. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we use um, we, we get the big data ball uh, data and mm, uh, okay, and then we clean that up and uh, that that does include um, lo location of missed shot. Miss shot. Uh, okay. There's a foul. Yeah. Okay. Actually, yeah, just to back up then, what, where does the data then come from for this? Like you have play-by-play -play data and then right, where, where are the data, data sources? Yes, yeah, so this is play-by-play -play data from uh, Big Data Ball. Yeah. Oh, is that what's called Big Data Ball? Yep. Okay, I, yeah, I, because I, I hear it and then I immediately think Big yeah. Data Ball. So I was doing like <laughs> a whip flash to myself, Big Data Ball. Oh, got it. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's uh, actually Big Data Ball, not the NFL Big Data Ball. It's an interesting service uh, <laughs> right. because it's it has a lot of historic data, play by play mainly. But uh, you know, it's I mean, it's not free, but it's very cheap. Um, so you can get ten years, uh, I don't know, for eighty bucks or something like that. Really? Oh wow, that saves you a lot of time from having to yeah. figure out how to scrape things in certain ways. <laughs> you know, as a student, I might not have wanted to do that, but now at this point, I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll spend the money to do that. <laughs> and they update it at midnight, you know, every night after the game. So mm -hmm. uh, we could get something pretty close to real time. Yeah. yeah, I'll post the link to that in the, the show notes as well for people to check out if they're curious. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's great for maybe this audience uh, of this podcast because um, the proprietor of Big Data Ball is really committed to uh, discounts for academic research, uh, so for academic use. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. So, so um, moving a little bit uh, more into diving a little bit into uh, the methodology and the analysis that um, you did, I, I think it was interesting looking at, uh, you know, the, the difference, you know, the premium that teams put on uh, three-point shots versus two-point shots. Uh, but one of the things that um, I wonder whether it's being missed on the way that uh, you do the aggregation is when you if you do the if you essentially dichotomize the shots right to two point shots and three point shots so by aggregating all these two point shots maybe you're missing some differences at free throw rates um, because for example uh, shots at the rim most probably have a higher free throw rate compared to let's say long twos um, so I wonder that if you differentiate basically not just based on two or three point shots but based on area from the court right so um, long twos, short, mid twos, uh, uh, restricted area. So are these, is this, is this still going to, um, you're still going to see this, this premium or it will be more like the traditional view where, you know, shots at the rim are very high value. Then you have the three point shots and then all the other, uh, two point shots. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Um, so, um, yeah, that was kind of our baseline question. Is there in general a three-point premium? And um, so what you're asking is, uh, is there still, uh, is there like a, are there conditional three-point premia compared to certain types of two-point shots? And uh, I, I think that's a really interesting question because you want to know, um, you know, we see a lot of reduction in the shot chart in the NBA. You want to know where to reduce it optimally and, and where not to, not just, Oh, shoot more threes from where, shoot more twos from where. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good direction for for the the um, the paper. Uh, I will tell um, uh, those listening uh, what we've done is just to uh, kind of demonstrate using aggregations of these true shot charts and these true point yields um, that um, th there was a, a three point premium in the NBA league wide across all threes compared to across all twos. Um, there, there was a three-point premium uh, as late as 2017-18. Um, um, and but but uh, according to the true true shot charts, it went away, and there's been a significant three-point dis premium um, since 2018-19, and it's deepening. And it, during that same time, three-point shot volume has gone up in the NBA. Uh, now, Costas's question is: Well, what types of threes are driving this? And um, uh, I think that's a really good question. I would say, you know, it's probably the marginal activity like uh, stretch fours, uh, you know, an increase in shot volume of threes from stretch fours and um, yeah, other other marginal shooters. It's not Stephen Curry should shoot fewer, fewer threes. Uh, he's destroying the game. These types of things. He's just fine. Um, these prolific shooters, but um, pro probably it's uh, more so um, this marginal three-point activity. Um, and yeah, so uh, the big takeaway from that part of the paper is that uh, according to the traditional aggregations of traditional shot charts, um, uh, we have a significant three-point premium, okay? So, um, and that kind of justifies the, the increase in three-point shot volume year, year over year. Um, but according to the, um, the the true shot chart, the advanced shot chart, um, we have uh, a deepening three-point disc premium uh, over the last few years. And um, uh, yeah, so so I, I do think that should be should be dissected a little bit. So, so and it, it, it's interesting um, uh, this change actually in the you know premium versus premium, positive versus negative. It, so I would, uh, if I hadn't seen the numbers, uh, mainly the dates, the season when this started happening, I would wonder whether, you know, it is because of the, uh, there was an emphasis put from the referees to not call all these fouls on the three-point uh, shots that players were trying to, uh, you know, uh, force. Uh, but that happened in 2020. So I wonder, is did you see any further this premium uh, after 2020 or is it more like a, Kind of a linear stable trend uh, yeah so um in, in our um quadratic uh, justin ran a, a quadratic specification you can talk a little about that yeah there's not really a difference between the quadratic and the and the linear you know but at the same time it, we, we have a dispremium mm -hmm. you know, so it's it, it follows very closely it's pretty much a straight line regardless if it's mm -hmm. quadratic or not yeah little leveling off yeah. so we might see a bottoming out in this um dispremium era but um uh, yeah, yeah, pr pr pretty similar, Sim uh, identical qualitative uh, significance results. But, um, and you know, around 2018, at the same time, we, we pick up in the in the true shot chart, uh, we pick up the significant disc premium for the first time. Um, the, you know, there was a big change. I, I'm not saying this was pivotal, but it, it was um, contemporaneous. There was a big change in. Um, how the three-point shot was guarded uh, in the NBA. There was um, 
they started to move to more zone. Um, uh, teams like the Miami Heat, they were having these kind of um, uh, anti-hardened types of um, zone defense implementations. Uh, these two threes with, uh, you know, actually uh, sometimes the forwards out in the two and, and some quick guards on uh, the edges of the three. And so uh, whether it was that or other things, we started to get experimentation in how um, a perimeter defense was enacted. Um, uh, pr pretty big changes starting in 2018 around that time. Yeah. So uh, I've heard uh, some people conjecture that um, defense is lagging um, offense in the analytic era. So there's an analytic innovation on offense and it's, uh, it causes this imbalance for a while. And then um, the, 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 uh, the defensive uh, analytic innovation trails it by maybe a few years. Building off of um, focusing on that regression analysis, actually, I wanted to ask about, uh, so this is looking at figure six uh, in the paper on page nine. Um, you know, the decision, the decision to model season as a trend instead of looking at, say, just like each season separately as its own categorical level in a way to get just averages separately for the seasons. Why did you look at uh, looking at just a single relationship with year increasing? Uh, does this question make sense when I'm asking? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the short answer is, um, yeah, we, we were kind of writing this draft under a deadline. I think you, you make a really good point and it's something we should do in the paper. We we're kind of writing this under a deadline and just thro throwing uh, that last part together. But um, I think you're right. That it may not necessarily be a trend, but we should evaluate. We should estimate each year. Because um, I think you can. What you can see is definitely a dip from 2016, 2017 to 2018 and 2019. Like yeah. visually, it kind of looks like okay, they're lower. But like 2020, it almost looks like things are kind of coming back up. Um, yeah. Yeah. You can't really. I guess another part I want to ask about was that is aggregated at the team level. So this is saying that at the team shot chart level, right, there seems to be evidence of a dispremium of three-point attempts. But could it be that you could still be seeing a premium for individual player level potentially in certain types of players? Yeah, so, um, so that figure six um, is estimating the league-wide um, okay. premium or dispremium. And then it has the strip chart, uh, which uh, subimposes the, the team fixed effects, which shows, you know, there's a lot of heterogeneity. Some teams are um, heavily in premium still, and some uh, more teams are, okay. are in, in dispremium. And um, yeah, yeah. And I, I would expect even more heterogeneity among players. And so uh, getting back to Costas's question, um, yeah, I think it's really important um, now that we, we have the general result, and I think we could uh, very well add the kind of year fixed effects result that you're talking about, which would be even better. Uh, uh, now that we have this kind of general result, uh, we need to try to unlock what's driving it, um, what types of three-point behaviors are um, um, counterproductive, and what types of, of two-point behaviors uh, are 
maybe uh, at, uh, in, um, undertaken at sub-equilibrium levels. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you want to add anything to that? Well, I think it is a good idea to look at the player level. So we'll probably look at that you know, before our final paper as well. And we'll also look at the 2021 results as well. Mm. Uh, see if that trend continues. Yeah, I guess 2020, right, was the, the COVID bubble season, right? I actually don't remember. 2020. Yeah. 2019, yeah. 2020, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and um, but uh, just kind of an interesting takeaway we had from figure six, it, it, it kind of seems like the analytic era has come full circle in, in some respects because you have, um, it, the analytics era kind of drove this increase in three-point volume around a real three-point premium in the NBA, a real recognized three-point premium. And then uh, three-point volume rose to the point that um, you know, people like Charles Barkley, these kind of anti-analytic um, uh, personalities uh, said, you know, it's ruining the game. There's too much three-point shooting and um, it might be counterproductive in certain ways. Um, and it, it turns out that uh, probably for the wrong reasons, um, uh, these people are, are starting to be true. So we can use analytics to show that uh, maybe the, the original takeaways from um, these analytic approaches in the NBA uh, are no longer the case. We get, we get a shift. Okay. So, um, and I think this was a while in the making um, really since we had sport view, we started to see a lot more three point activity. Um, I would say the first wave of kind of anti three point sentiment was that, well, it increases variance. There's an increase in risk um, from uh, increased three point activity. It's like a risky stock portfolio or something. Uh, so you can have off nights more likely and, and this sort of thing. Um, but now we're seeing it kind of in the uh, the first moment in, in, in the mean that um, uh, some three-point activities might be um, kind of eroding the overall value of the activity. And so, yeah, so we need to identify uh, what those types of activities are. Interesting. So something I wanted to ask about, because this is also related to other sports, uh, especially in the context of thinking about expected goals models and um, like in the notes I shared with you thinking about like hockey, for instance, uh, an expected goals model for hockey where all, not all shots are equal in terms of like offensive rebound probability, right? So then we would think if we actually modeled shots with like this multinomial outcome, whether or not, okay, missed shot, uh, or made shot, but then the missed shots could be broken up into these different categories, right? And those different levels, obviously an offensive rebound would have positive value, right? To the team making, you know, attempting the, the shot. So what I was wondering was, what about, do you think it's possible to account for rebound probability? And is there any evidence potentially that if that varies just purely spatially based on the shot attempt? Um, yeah, I think we should uh, definitely add that. We, we were talking about that earlier, and you know, this is still a work in progress. We'd like to add offensive rebounds. Number one issue is that we don't have the XY locations of the offensive rebounds. So we'll yeah, have to, you know, at least though, the the good thing would just be to know right the play by play log if it occurred, and mm -hmm. I, it would just be interesting to see okay. like I imagine someone probably is like this somewhere where like spatially, um, whether or not you know a three point attempt is you know, more or less likely to be rebounded by whichever team and that then affects like the 
value in some way. Um, I don't know if Costas, have you seen any work related to that? Or? Costas, did you hear me? It looks like maybe Costas froze on us, but. Yeah, now I'm on pros. <laughs> okay. Well, I was I was asking about the um, if you had seen any work related to uh, looking at like rebound probability uh, by information about the shot attempt, not necessarily tracking data information, but just <laughs> even play log data, like just the play by play data info. Yeah, I, I mean, I have seen from tracking data. I think there was um, from the folks at Second Spectrum. There was a paper at Sloan that uh, basically showed that. There was some pattern, for example, um, you know, there is value if you cast for offensive rebound from the weak side, so for the opposite side where the shot occurred. Uh, now, I think for uh, uh, for that starting thing to, to see is regardless of the location to see, you know, if a shot is taken by that location, the possession as a whole, how many points does it yield? Because this accounts for the offensive rebounds, right? So. You don't care where the offensive rebound occurred, but uh, that the fact that you know you took a shot from there, you took the offensive rebound if the shot was missed, and then there was a score. Uh, but um, yeah, that 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 goes a little more on the true shotting, right? Seeing the whole possession. But it's interesting because, for example, when I was looking at uh, some data like that, uh, you know, for rebounding, it is interesting. For example, that you can see some let's say cost, um, benefit cost analysis in the sense that, you know, shots at the rim are the best in terms of expected value, but when they are missed, they lead with high chance some to, to um, transition from the opponent, right? Because you have a player essentially out of bounds trying to get back to, um, uh, to, to defense. So, uh, yeah, that is uh, what, what I think of as a second order effects, right? That, that, that you could add and have even more advanced kind of short charts. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, we, we still have a partial picture um, in this true shot charts paper. Really the ultimate goal as both Ron and Costa said would be to understand pursuant to that shot going up, what is the, you know, you know what's the expected uh, point yield in the possession. So yeah, offensive rebounding would be an important part of that. And I'll add when uh, when you have a, a team that shoots more three-point shots, um, you know, your, your, your field goal percentage is going to go down. So um, kind of the direct effect of that is that uh, there's going to be more opportunities for offensive rebounds than uh, maybe a two-point heavy team. Um, the indirect effect is that they have more spacing along the perimeter so that uh, their offensive rebounding rate goes down. So the opportunities go up, the rate goes down. And so um, the, you know, it's kind of a priori ambiguous. It's kind of an empirical question. And maybe, you know, the paper that Costa saw at MIT gets it uh, some, some related things, but, um, you know, a priori to research like that, it, it, it's ambiguous. Uh, uh, how, yeah, how a three-point strategy would affect the, the likelihood of getting that uh, that that rebound, yeah, um, given those effects. But, but I but, think combi actually combining what uh, Ron's comment about rebounding and what you're mentioning now, it's it's pretty interesting also because you, you 
we kind of sit at the NBA now where some teams, well, typically for many years, teams were, um, you know, let's go back on different transition defense, not crash for the offensive rebounds. But now you see teams like Memphis um, that they crash the offensive glass very hard and they're able to generate second chance points. And, uh, you know, they, they might be able to get back some of this premium that they might be losing by shooting a high volume uh, three point shot. So I think it's, it's interesting what also the kind of the history that you said about the analytics and how these things change as, you know, conditions change basically. Yes. Yes. Agreed. There's something I want to ask about also, this is pretty much unrelated to your paper. Um, but I'm just curious about this from my own interest of, from the data visualization viewpoint, uh, what I like to teach with students is to think of the, the visualization itself as a model, right? And there's bias, variance, trade-off with the visual. If we make a shot chart for a player one year, and then we make a shot chart for the player the next year, right? What choices we make about how we construct that visual will lead to whether or not it, there will be high variance in the display from one year to the next, right? Not just the summary, but just even thinking about I'm always blown away by like the size of the hexagons in these shot charts. I was curious, like, do you have any thoughts on this in terms of like you put two feet? And I'm pretty sure that's just like what's accepted. Uh, but has anybody looked at adjusting that, tuning that in some way? Uh, has anyone even thought about evaluating this or am I just being real nitpicky? I think it's a great point. And two feet is the convention and that's why we used it. I did play around with it. and. It does seem like the, the best the best size for uh, team level at the season level. You know, so you get the um, you get a distribution of shots, uh, but it's not too much where you get where it's not too small where you get noise. And also you want it small enough where you can um, you could follow the contour of the three point arc, right? If it's too large, you can't follow that contour. Yeah, if it's too small, it's biased, right? Right, right. you're far right. away so from actually bias, seeing yeah. the relationship. Yeah, and if it's too small, then it's too noisy. It's yeah. something I want to add. If we add, a, if we create a dashboard, I want to add uh, the size as an interaction, an interactive control. Oh yeah, that would be fantastic to have. Yeah, to be able it's to completely see different. That. Yeah, if you're looking at a game level versus you know a player level, game level would be completely different than a, a team level. And season. I would exploit that in a classroom if you did add that to a dashboard yeah. for it to show that would be a nice uh, real data example instead of me. Uh, varying degrees of simulating data and showing histograms with different bin sizes. Here's a shot right. chart version of this. <laughs> yeah, and I, I do think um, to your point that it's just a convention, it's a, a, an unoptimized convention is that, um, you know, it, it necessarily treats uh, side to side uh, distance differential uh, the same as back and forth, which um, I think at certain that can be very untrue at certain points in um, in the shot chart on the floor um, that uh, you know an east west change um, uh, would would be equivalent to a, a north south change. Um, yeah, so if you if you thought of like um, kind of an endogenous like cluster analysis, I think you would get um, some some shapes that favored um, uh, maybe east west movement over north south or vice versa yeah no that's that's really interesting right the visual is treating both dimensions in this in same equal manner uh, when that might not necessarily be true for thinking about how to evaluate the uh, the decision to shoot at a location or not 
we have seen papers that use rectangular shot charts or rectangular bins, and they are a two to one. Um, but I've never seen one using hex hexagons. Mm -hmm. And so I think that would be something interesting to look into. Moving on to continuing like the methodology discussion, I was curious um, if you could provide some walkthrough about the clustering analysis and the modeling you did. So think about sections 3.3 of this paper and then 3.4. Uh, what was the overall goal of this? You're, you're clustering based on this average true point yield and the XY location. And then this next step you did in terms of modeling with this clustering information. Could you provide us an overview of, okay, what, what were you setting out to do with this step, these steps? I guess my, my goal was to create a neural net that could create an optimal shot chart. And um, to do that, we need to get some clustering in there. And so we, we did do some uh, normalization of the data. Um, you have to be very careful with the normalization because of course the scale is gonna be different with the XY versus the, uh, um, the expected points or the true, true points. And so we used a, um, um, a zero mean unit variance uh, normalization for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, part of, of that section um, uh, is kind of validating whether, whether you know, uh, parts of the floor are, um, or whether shot volume for different parts of the floor and variation at the game level, whether this is adding to our understanding of uh, game outcomes. So uh, we ran a baseline neural net in which we just took the team's performance, the two teams' performance going into that game up to that date in the season. And then um, in uh, kind of the treatment group neural net, we, we also threw in um, this, uh, volume differentials from each uh, cluster uh, of the floor. And we tried to see, um, you know, conditional on how you had done to that point in the season, does uh, your shot chart, your game level shot chart and differentials between the, the, your, your game level shot chart and the opponents uh, with respect to these clusters, is this helping to drive game outcomes? And we, we found a, what we see as a pretty substantial uh, root mean squared error reduction when we, when we threw in the, um, shot volume at cluster behavior. So I, I guess the kind of philosophy of that, I think it's still um, like some other parts of the paper still um, uh, kind of a first draft situation, but uh, the philosophy was, uh, can you game plan around the shot chart in a meaningful way and say, um, you know, of course it's gonna vary by team, but um, uh, you know, conditional on who's playing and who you're playing against, who you are and who you're playing against, can you, uh, Put the, put the shot chart in, in the game plan and can you put the opponent's shot chart in the game plan um, in a meaningful manner? So instead of um, using the clustering, which the clustering was based on the, the expected points, right? From the true shot uh, charts. Mm -hmm. Would it um, give you a different view if you use, let's say the, the hex beam, right? Of course, it might mm -hmm. lead to sparsity of data because now you have so yeah, many not, not but, but uh, let's say the floor area, right? Corner, uh, right corner three, left corner three, slots. So it's still kind of smaller dimensionality, but avoiding to do the clustering. I mean, still you have the sort of a clustering, but it's more of the official court zones, let's say. Do you think you would yeah. have seen something different? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, that uh, 
yeah, yeah, essentially what we're doing is we're we're clustering across men. So we already have these location um, X variables and uh, we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of uh, grouping them together. Um, so um, that, that layer perhaps is unnecessary. Um, yeah, th there is the sparsity issue. I think that's why we went ahead and clustered, but uh, yeah, do, do you have- Yeah, I was gonna say just that, that yeah, sparsity of data, that, that's the issue. I don't know if we actually tried it though. So we might want to try it and see what the results are uh, just by using the hex bins or maybe using larger hex bins and see if that might help the problem. So the main yeah. thing like the, the clustering captures though, right? Is like looking at figure seven to figure eight is this point that um, by not just clustering based on the actual locations because then it would just be this nice Voronoi on the court. Um, but accounting for uh, the 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 true point value right uh, the true shot value that you have yeah. you're seeing this what you're calling an arbitrage opportunity in terms of um, more value being located on one side of a cord versus another yeah yeah i can speak to that um i i think justin and i both thought it was very interesting that um you know, we, we have seven clusters using the elbow method. We, we determine seven clusters and they kind of split um, at the goal line. So you have, um, well, there's one that's a little weird, but essentially you have six kind of thick clusters and um, they form kind of a three by two array, uh, a three by two partition of the um, a near partition of the um, half court. And so you can just imagine you can imagine them kind of lining up like that, three rows, two columns, and um, and they split right at the goal line, which uh, is was kind of interesting to us and um, implied to us a handedness effect. And we we looked at um, using Shapley values and uh, average marginal effects uh, of the clusters and the the subsequent neural net analysis. So, uh, we found that um, there was a right hand side premium, and um, you know, uh, and, and that's true near the baseline, that's true uh, at the wing, um, that's true deep, uh, deep three, uh, that there's a right, right over left uh, hand side premium. And, uh, but it's most pronounced at the, kind of in the right, right baseline area, and, uh, including the right uh, corner three. Uh, that, that's, some, that's the hottest real estate. If you look at the average uh, uh, true point yield of the shot and also, if you just look at the average marginal effect on the score margin of, of the game, just the ability to get to that right baseline. And uh, so why is that? And why does it split at the goal line? Well, most players are right-handed in the league. So um, for example, when you penetrate right, um, you're, you're not only going to your strong side, you're forcing the defender who's probably right-handed, right-footed, uh, same-footed uh, to slide left. Okay, so you're putting yourself in an advantage, your player at a disadvantage. Um, and um, so, so, so that, that's a big advantage, I think, for penetration. Um, for the, you know, I've, I've actually talked to Costas before about the right corner three and asked if he had any thoughts on, you know, there's this result that it's persistent that the right corner three is uh, players are more proficient than the left corner three and pretty substantially so. The right corner three is the, is the best deal on the NBA um, shot chart, and um, 
And why is that? Why isn't it? Why isn't the left corner three similarly um, a similarly hot area? Well, you know, the thing I talked to closest about uh, was uh, most right-handed shooters. They can kind of frame the shot with their their shooting hand um, from the right corner. They can't do that with the left corner. So, you know, the the corner three is kind of a contextless shot, other than you know the side of the backboard. So, so maybe they're framing the shot with their shooting hand lining up in a certain way with the um, with the side of the backboard. Um, that's the, but uh, it seems to really work for in a right-handed dominant league, the, the right corner three. So, but for whatever reasons, you know, there, there's a, a right side premium. Now, is that arbitrage? Um, I think it could be in the long run. Um, if you can exploit, you have to be able to exploit it. So um, maybe, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like it, it definitely says, you know, there's a lot of emphasis in the NBA on e even spacing, even ball distribution. Maybe in all of this talk, um, there, it looks like there's a disequilibrium. They're, they're shooting too much from the left-hand side. In an equilibrium, you would expect um, not necessarily equal volume on both sides of the court, but equal uh, likelihood of um, making a shot or equal expected points on each side. So that's what an equilibrium would look like. So in a, uh, a right-hand dominant league, what I would expect an equilibrium to be what is that most shots come from the right-hand side, but that expected points on the right and left-hand side are about equal. Um, but what we're seeing is um, volumes mo uh, more uh, even, and uh, but proficiency is um, much higher on the right-hand side. So uh, you can have even spacing, but uh, the trigger should be pulled more often for the average NBA team from the right-hand side than it is being uh, pulled. Do you think it's, um, is there something that's missing in the sense of do teams defend more from that side or is there something that goes into them trying to limit that type of shot to explain why it's the volume doesn't shift more so that way? Is there something going on there potentially or like, do we need to have maybe teams know about this behind the scenes because they have the data, um, but like, would we need to be able to have the tracking data to know if teams try to position themselves over there more to guard that more proficient shot? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about it, but I, I do know I, um, you know, um, kind of the converse of what I said before, if, if uh, a team is trying to get penetration on the left-hand side, um, then the defense has to slide right. Um, so that's strong side. So they, they can probably shut that uh, down a little more easily. Um, but um, I think that uh, my guess, I, I'm not sure the answer to your question, but my guess is that um, teams are trying to play a really nice mixed strategy with uh, respect to spacing and uh, they've discounted the effective handedness uh, a, a little bit. Uh, it's not huge, but it's a little bit they've discounted the effective handedness. So, um, you know, not all mixed strategy Nash equilibria are, you know, play this strategy half the time and that strategy half the time. It can be 55-45, it can be 52-48, uh, but I think they can have even spacing, but um, maybe um, maybe have a little bit more unequal um, likelihood of pulling the trigger from that, from that left-hand side. But uh, I guess the short answer would be, I, I, I don't know the answer to your question, whether 
there's something preventing them from getting more towards what would look like an equilibrium? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Something I think the data could yield though. One, one other question I had, um, I, was, I was just glancing around before I turned this over to Costas for his discussion related question. Uh, did you get, did you look at, um, did you get a chance to see uh, the positive residual true shooting charts they have? I was just glancing at this. I think they're related to what you're talking about this paper. I didn't know if you, you have any connection with that or? I haven't seen those and I, I would like to. Yeah, um, we'll definitely look them up af afterward. Um, we, uh, yeah, we kind of um, viewed this as a refinement of, uh, of maybe stat muse and some, uh, some of the other shot charts we've, we've seen. But um, yeah, I, I would really like to see um, something that tries um, maybe, maybe some even unrelated advanced techniques um, toward, toward, toward getting more information from shot locations. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, Costas, do you have some discussion question you want to ask? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I I want to um, go back a little bit to the left versus right handedness, and I think an interesting way maybe to um, at least get some more evidence whether that's uh, the case would be maybe if you do the exact same analysis but splitting the league into left handed uh, players and right handed players, so you group all the left handed and all the right handed and see how do these two look different. Uh, so do you see when you only keep the left-handed, do you see a, a premium on the left side and um, that kind of thing? So that might, it will not prove 100% anything, but it will give you some more evidence whether that kind of hypothesis is plausible. So I think that um, that might be something interesting to see, especially, you know, players, you know, like Harden or Jalen Brunson, stuff like that. That's a great idea. Another idea I had was to just, Normalize the handedness of the players to see if it's transitively effect or not. But I think mm -hmm. either way would be a good approach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my only question, which um, goes a little bit uh, back to the positive residual that uh, Ron said. So positive residual actually has created some some short charts also that it's not really short. It's event location, so you know where uh, rebounds occurred and stuff like that. Uh, so I wonder whether does it make sense to also consider non-shooting fouls, especially if they if you are in the penalty, because these uh, also give you you know two free throws, right? Um, so this will this goes not necessarily that much to the value of a shot, but more to the value of an uh, of a, a location on the court, uh, because now you are getting fouled, so you are in the penalty, you get uh, to shoot two free throws. Uh, now again, I'm not sure whether you will see this difference in the premium this premium because. I would guess a lot of non-shooting fouls, especially if uh, their spread uh, spread leg have to do with moving screens and stuff like that, which are not necessarily in the um, you know near the basket or uh, even at the mid range. If you're if we're talking about spread pick and rolls, but in general, would can you see this adding any value on um, even further uh, you know through shot charts plus? I like the idea. You could have like a foul a foul chart. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I like the idea. And I see a spectrum there, like uh, on ball, uh, non shooting foul. Um, I think, yeah, um, you can almost group that uh, location meaningfully um, uh, with, with, with the, the, sh the shooting fouls. Um, so uh, you can kind of get a sense of, of, 
um, well, not only where the, the player is, but kind of what they're trying to do. Um, they're probably not just trying to stay on the perimeter with the ball and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. And um, yeah, going back to your, your previous point, I, I like that also. And uh, I was kind of thinking, um, you know, I, I agree uh, more handedness data would allow us to say more about um, this clustering analysis and, and, the, and the results. And when we feed the cluster into the neural net and uh, it made me think, um, you know, what, it, what are a complementary wings? Like, uh, should we be thinking in terms of a, a right-handed wing and a left-handed wing in lineups? Um, and do teams already do that? I, of course, I've learned uh, uh, often, uh, especially certain teams are, are one step ahead of the, um, the, data, the data analyses, um, the kind of public data analyses. So are teams thinking in terms of complementary wings with respect to handedness and are they getting getting benefits from that, not only, you know, maybe not only stationing um, two guys in the corner, but um, stationing the, the right two, the correct two guys in the corner. And uh, if not, you know, um, maybe some results to the effect of, of premium from complementary wings would, would lead to, um, you know, uh, free agency or draft um, uh, premium for, for maybe a left-handed wing. Um, because he can he can station more effectively on the on, on that left corner uh, certain things like that yeah that, uh, yeah that, that's interesting I've never thought about it I, I guess that so Ron said that he is not um, a basketball person I'm not a baseball person but I know there is a lot of discussion about left and right-handed pitchers so I wonder whether it goes to the same uh, you know direction there you yeah. go rubbing off on you platoon effects yeah <laughs> Yeah, and I think baseball's done a much, a very sophisticated job of um, these kind of handedness effects with, with respect to pitcher. You know, you got the first base, um, and you have yeah, just the side of the plate with respect to the DH. Um, uh, these sorts of things, and um, you know, I wasn't even. I'm not going to say you know, we're trying to bring this to to basketball. I, I wasn't even thinking in those terms of handedness, and I don't think we really think in those terms in, in basketball analytics for the most part. Maybe. Some people are that I don't know about, but um, but this cluster, uh, you know, if if the um, listeners look at any part of the paper, I would say that the, the cluster figure is is really neat. The cluster kind of hits you in the in the face and says, oh, maybe there's uh, we should be looking at handedness um, in um, uh, when we look at shot charts and we look at uh, shot activity and even personnel in the NBA. Yeah, no, it's extremely interesting. So that's why yeah, I encourage people to, when they look at the paper, definitely check out figure seven in terms of we have this average true point yield, the bins X, Y location, everything standardized. So the causing the tilt is then the difference in the average true point yield from just the equal divide on the court. Yeah. The, um, it's very interesting. And uh, Kostas, do you have anything else you want to add or... No, um, I think uh, through all my questions, a very interesting work, and I, uh, I'm waiting to see where it um, it goes from here. Yeah, absolutely. And just thank you again, Shane and Justin, uh, taking the time, one for sharing a paper, which you admitted is effectively like early draft, and you know, especially going with this public, talk about it. You know, it's kind of exciting in a way, get people 
behind the scenes look of writing and you know disseminating research in a very public manner. Yeah, yeah, we were um, kind of, uh, you talked about the um, kind of history of, of the project and, and kind of getting into that. Uh, I think we were going at this pretty strong and then I, I went on research leave and uh, um, ironically, well, I did a lot of research in the research leave, but this particular project kind of uh, went on hiatus a little bit during the research leave. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm back in Syracuse with uh, Justin and uh, uh, we're getting it going again. So I, I think this podcast really helped us conceive of this um, the second draft push and trying to um, get this towards a, a more publishable uh, format. And also I, I would add your, your comments and your expertise have helped us. I, I've noted several things, um, uh, uh, several ideas that came from your questions. So I, I really appreciate those. I do want to go back and so the, the play-by-play data, the, the missed foul shot, or the, the sorry, the foul missed shots are not, the locations are not, do not exist in the, in the data. Okay. So again, I had to go back and look at the data and verify that the, that, um, yeah, the actual locations do not exist. And so we had to use the ratio of the um, foul missed shots to and ones, and then use that ratio okay. to estimate, to estimate the number of, uh, oh, that's of right. foul yeah. missed shots. Yeah, the and, yeah, that's right. The and so this, yeah, and this might be distortionary. The and one data um, uh, told us um, uh, informed the estimate for the shot location for the um, the missed shot that was fouled. Yeah, that's right. So I guess since they're they're not considered attempts, they simply don't have the actual location mm -hmm. within the logs. Yeah, interesting. Okay, got it. So if okay. we can. If we can load up our research fund and get second spectrum data, then maybe we can uh, get the, yeah, the so, truth. So, that, so that's the thing. Shots that were fouled that were not made, you don't know where they occurred. That's right. Got it. Okay. I see. And, and that's why it makes sense to aggregate all of them together, too. At, actually, at because that you level. know that it was uh, a two-point so because Yeah, so we know. Uh, that's such a strange them. thing with the data collection. It's kind of yeah. weird if you think about it. They're recording these shots. Just record all of them for us to use. Well, you know the um, the the kind of unfortunate uh, traditional statistic in baseball, I think, is batting average. In, in basketball, it's field goal percentage because um, it um, it kind of def it's the kind of the traditional definition of proficiency, and it leads um, to the, to uh, which attempts are tracked uh, in this case. Um, and it leads to our idea of uh, volume activity uh, across the court. Yeah, but um, yeah, now that I remember it, yeah, the, the approach is to say, okay, um, what is, um, how relatively likely are you, if you make a shot from this bin, a uh, shot from the field, how relatively likely are you, given that you took a shot, how relatively likely are you to, to be fouled on that shot uh, while, while attempting. And so that allows us to estimate, uh, yeah, Justin was right earlier in the uh, episode. I just forgot. That allows us to estimate the likelihood that you, you um, missed the shot and um, were, were fouled. So, so we apportion all these missing, missing free throws uh, that don't have a shot location yeah. assigned to them based on the and one uh, relative and one activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Great. 
All right. Thank you again, Shane and Justin, taking the time to talk about the work, talk about the paper. Uh, encourage people then to check it out in the uh, the link in the show notes. And uh, if you want to, is there any way people can additionally follow work you post uh, in the coming months ahead and anything to stay tuned or check out what's going on at Syracuse, perhaps? I'm, I'm not in the Twitter age yet, but uh, <laughs> I probably need to get there. I have an email address. Um, so <laughs> you can reach me at my email address, but uh, I, I plan to be regularly conferencing. And I think this goes for Justin too. Uh, our favorite is honestly is Carnegie Mellon Sport Analytics Conference and um, each November, early November. And uh, we've been doing it virtually, yeah. Um, and before that, in person, and we've really enjoyed it in both, um, both incarnations. But um, uh, and yeah, we like MIT, uh, but we personally, I don't want to make any enemies uh, among your listeners. But <laughs> personally, we like the academic nature of Carnegie Mellon. We think it balances the industry needs and the the academic interests very well. Um, and I'd say Nessus is kind of in that same range, uh, um, but we like uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, the best. And I, I can assure <laughs> listeners that I did not pay Shane or Justin to say anything about the conference. They just decided to on their own, which is great. <laughs> but no, thank you. Thank you for the positive words. The uh, Yeah, this time around, people can check out uh, – we're going to be posting info about the conference uh, in the near future. Uh, be the weekend of October 28th, 29th this year with a mix of things in person and remote, uh, which is great. So just on that note, uh, just once again, thanks Shane and Justin for joining us and thank you all for listening until next time. Thank you. Thanks.